I want to say again how good it is to be back with you. I've missed you. Looking forward to catching up with your stories, with your lives. Um, and mostly, I've missed worshiping with you. So it's so good to be with you in the chapel today. And welcome to those of you balcony dwellers who I see down here on the main floor. This is uh, kind of rocking my world, but welcome. It's, it's good to be together. Today, we launch a new sermon series called Sacred Space. What is it that makes space sacred? And how do we create that sacred space for one another? Our scripture lesson comes today from the book of Exodus. Exodus is like the word exit, and it refers to the way out. Today, we're going to listen to part of the song of Moses, the song that he sang after God led the people out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land, a place of hope. So listen for how Moses rejoices on this way out. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in splendor, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. In your steadfast love, you led the people whom you redeemed. You guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples heard, they trembled. Pangs seized the inhabitants of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom were dismayed. Trembling seized the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan melted away. Terror and dread fell upon them by the might of your arm. They became as still as a stone until your people, O Lord, passed by, until the people whom you acquired passed by, you brought them in and planted them on the mountain of your own possession, the place, O Lord, that you made your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, that your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. May God bless this reading to our understanding. You open the thick, imposing door. You step across the threshold, your pupils narrow to adapt to the darkness. Then your eye moves upward to see what is glimmering up ahead in the front of the room, and your heart begins to quicken. You have just set your foot in a cathedral in Paris or Venice or New York or St. Louis. You are no longer a tourist. You are a pilgrim on a journey. Or maybe you're not on vacation at all. Maybe you're here at home on a Thursday. You're attending a colleague's funeral or a neighbor's wedding or a child's piano recital. Some occasion has summoned you away from your ordinary slog through emails and errands into a place that is shrouded with majesty and mystery. Your foot crosses the threshold and your heart begins to quicken. Your eyes gaze upward. Your body is surrounded by something. You can feel it, but you don't quite have words for it. It happened to me already this morning when I came in early and peeked into the sanctuary still in scaffolding and yet so beautiful happened an hour or so ago when I stepped into the chapel for the first time since May 27th. It always takes my breath away. Why? 
Why does a room that we call the chapel or the sanctuary tug at the heart in a way that the ballroom at the Hyatt Regency does not? Why does the beauty of a sanctuary grip us in a way that the beauty of Hellsburg Hall at Kauffman Center does not? If God is everywhere, and surely God is everywhere, then why is it that when we step across the threshold into a sanctuary, something shifts within our own souls? Have you noticed that even your friends who do not profess a belief in God find themselves drawn in, perhaps when they're on vacation or just visiting a friend in another city, they go in to see the mosque or the Jewish temple or the Hindu shrine or the Catholic cathedral? What is it that compels us? What makes a sacred place? a sacred place. Why do people who love the chapel say, I just love the chapel? And why do you and I long to be back in the sanctuary? When we open our Bibles, we find many critical life-altering moments that took place in the pages of Scripture in a sanctuary. Jesus preached his first sermon in the hometown synagogue, and what Jesus preached that day so upset his fifth and sixth grade Sunday school teachers that they ran him right out of town. But that's another sermon for another day. When Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, was born just a few months before Jesus, it was inside the holiest place in the sanctuary that John the Baptist's father receives a message from an angel saying, your wife is going to bear a child. The father is so shocked by what he hears in the sanctuary that he is struck mute, unable to speak for the whole nine months until he finally cradles John in his own arms and can speak again. In the first half of the Bible, we read what seems like the actual blueprints for building a sanctuary. It's like overhearing the architect and the contractor having a conversation. Make it this many cubits in length, this many cubits high. Use acacia wood. God, you see, has some very narrow specifications about how we might build this space so that it will pass the holy building codes and really become a divine chamber to quicken our hearts, a house suitable for God. What is that? And once the sanctuary is built in the scriptures, someone has to always sleep inside of there to keep watch over the holy things. And there's this little boy named Samuel who keeps waking up in the middle of the night in the sanctuary and running over to the priest and saying, did you call me? And the priest says, no, go back to sleep. And finally, the third time he wakes up, Samuel realizes it's God calling his name. God calling him to be a servant of God. Maybe one reason this is a holy place is because this is where it all happens. This is where those couples say, I do. This is where we bury those we love. This is where teenagers are baptized, where infants are dedicated. I love the story that scholar Elaine Pagels tells 
She was a young woman, studying, working. She took a run early on a Sunday morning. She was running in Manhattan along the edge of Central Park, but it was February, dreary, cold, and she ducked inside of a church that faces Central Park. She just needed to catch her breath and warm up a bit before she carried on with this run. And as she stood in the entryway, she could hear that a church service was going on in the sanctuary. She could see the priest in robes walking back and forth across the chancel. She could hear the choir singing in four-part harmony, and she suddenly realized, wow, it's been such a long time since I was in church. And she realized church was exactly where she needed to be because only the day before, she had been told by a team of physicians that her two-year-old had a terminal lung disease. She had no idea what to do, but she sensed that in the sanctuary were people who knew how to deal with life and death, and she decided she would return to the sanctuary again and again, that in this sacred space, she could find the energy and the resolve to keep going along a path that she knew would not be easy. Maybe you have had a similar life experience a day when you knew you needed to be in the sanctuary where a particular sacred place became for you a place to keep going back to, a place to depend upon, a place to seek God's presence or comfort. Maybe you had to go to that place so you could lean on people who knew about life and death. But why that particular place? What is it for you that makes the sacred space really sacred? Is it that you once knew God there, heard God speak? Is it that there you find the courage to seek God? Or is it that this place is no holier than any other place? This morning, I decided that we would look at the first scripture in the Bible that uses the word sanctuary. You know, the Bible begins before any buildings have been built. There's just a garden, that Garden of Eden. And then the earliest people are God, of God are nomads wandering around from place to place. So the word sanctuary does not appear until the second book of the Bible, Exodus 15. The first mention of sanctuary comes on the lips of Moses as he sings this song of gratitude describing what God has been up to. God he says in the song, God stretched out God's hand to save God's people. God guided them to a new home. God brought them to freedom. And one line is specifically about the sacred space God created. God, you made your abode the sanctuary. Your hands, O oh God, established the sanctuary. But here's the funny thing about Moses' song. Moses sings this song many, many years before an actual sanctuary will be built. It will be generations before a temple is constructed with stones and marble and shimmering gold cabinets for God's scrolls. When Moses sings this song about the sanctuary, Moses is celebrating the moment when God led the people from slavery in Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea and into the land that would take them to milk and honey, to new life, to freedom. This first reference to sanctuary is not about a physical building, but about an experience 
that the people had where they knew freedom and new life, where they knew joy and relief and hope. The people were stuck in slavery, and God made a way out of no way. One of my favorite spiritual mentors is a man named Howard Thurman. I only know him through his published works. He was the first African-American chaplain of Boston University back in 1953. He was one of the strongest spiritual voices of the 20th century, and he and another leader founded the first multiracial, multiracial and interdenominational church in the United States in California. Howard was even a partner with Gandhi in leading others to think about the world in a more holistic human way. But when Howard Thurman was just a little boy in Daytona Beach, Florida, the schools for black children ended with the seventh grade. And the high schools that black children were eligible to go to began at the ninth grade. So there was no way for him to advance to high school. And so the principal of his lower school said, Howard, come to my office over lunch hour every day and I will tutor you in the eighth grade. So during his seventh grade year, he did seventh and eighth grade. And at the end of that year, the superintendent said, come to my office, I will give you the exam to see if you can enter high school. And he did, a way was made out of no way. Is it that we step into these holy, sacred places and remember that there was indeed a time when God made a way out of no way in our own lives, where we remember, ah, God has been active in this world and in my life. When Moses sings this song about God in the books, book of Exodus, he says it in a curious way, I think. Moses says, God, you brought them in and you planted them on the mountain of your own possession, the place, O Lord, that you made, your abode, your sanctuary. I think it's funny that he says God planted the people on the mountain. We plant begonias. We plant tomatoes. We plant trees. We don't plant people. It sounds so permanent so rooted, so organic. But the song that Moses sings is the song about a God who plants people on God's holy mountain, the mountain of God's own possession. God and the people, you see, they are not just friends. They coexist on this holy ground, united in one home, one abode, one sanctuary, together in that sacred place. Moses then sings about a sanctuary where there is no stained glass, there is no altar, there are no books, no scrolls, no marble, no mahogany, no pews, only a relationship between God and God's people. The first sanctuary was not a place, but an experience. Sanctuary unfolded when they knew that God had picked them up and planted them right on God's mountain. Sanctuary happened when they felt the shift in the soul and knew that God had just crossed into the threshold 
and place them in a holy place right in the presence of God. In July, I spent two weeks living in solitude in two different monasteries in the south of France. During the second week, I was on this tiny island in the Mediterranean Sea that had been inhabited by Christian monks for 1,600 years. It was just tiny, only a mile long and a half a mile across, seven times a day, beginning at 4.30 a.m., and no, I did not attend this service. They prayed. They concluded at 8.30 p.m., plenty of time for me to pray between 7 a.m. and 8 p.m., but they gathered in worship. The church bells would ring. The monks would line up in single file, wearing their brown hooded robes. The monks would chant the scriptures and the prayers, their a cappella voices reverberating with long echoes off of the stone walls. Between the services, the monks would tend to the grapevines, make olive oil, serve meals to guests like me, meet with guests like me who wanted to talk about prayer and the Bible and spiritual life. Guests, like the monks, are expected to keep silence. Even breakfast, lunch, and dinner are served in complete silence. But after the meal, all the guests get up together and go into the kitchen to do the dishes. No dishwasher. And I called my husband and I said, my favorite part is the dishwashing because you can kind of talk during this time. You know, you have to say, pass me the sponge or where is the broom or do these dishes go here? On my last morning at the monastery, I was in the kitchen doing the dishes for the last time and it was just two of us. Everybody else had scooted away. There was one other guest. She was wiping down the counters. I was putting away the last cups and saucers and she broke the silence. She could tell that I was not a native French speaker. And so she began to talk very quietly to me in English. She explained that she was from Paris, but she had lived in the United States for 15 years. She explained that she was kind of like a nun, not quite a nun, but you know, uh, had taken vows. Anyway, I think of her as a nun. But this nun-like woman began talking to me about what my experience had been like. She said, you know, you're not French. I wonder what it's like for you here with all these French customs, and you're not Catholic. I wonder what this experience has been like for you. And I said, oh, it's been so uplifting. This place is so beautiful, so spiritual, so holy. And I said, this is my last day. I'm about to catch the ferry. I have a bit of a stomach ache. I'm very hot. I'm very tired. I so want to go home to America. And I realized there were tears streaming down my cheeks. And she said to me, let the tears come. They are a gift from God and they are holy. And all of a sudden, I felt like I was planted on God's holy mountain even though we were standing in an industrial kitchen with stainless steel cabinets, it still felt exactly like we were planted in a holy space in the presence of the divine. And she knew just what to do. She stopped talking. 
She took a couple of steps closer to me. She let me weep, and she nodded. And then I said to her, I got to go. My ferry is soon. And I scooted out, and I went back to my room, and I, and I zipped up my suitcase, and then I heard this at my door, and I, I opened the door, and it was this nun-like woman, and she handed me this little postcard upon which she had painted with watercolors a beautiful scene of the monastery, the mountains, the coastline. It was so beautiful, and on it she had written, Dear Pilgrim on Earth, there is a love greater than love. Sanctuary happens when God's foot crosses the threshold into our ordinary lives and we realize that we are in the presence of the Divine One. Our chapel, our sanctuary, our beautiful outdoor worship space, these sacred spaces at church remind us that God is always moving towards us coming to make a home among us here on earth.